And I'm actually going to read it from the message version, or uh, Eugene Peterson's version. Version is a. Did I say that? <laughs> Take that off the recording. Make sure. Matthew chapter seven, and this is Jesus talking right at the end of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and he says these words that I speak to you are not just incidental additions to your life. They're not homeowner improvements to your standard of living. But these are foundational words. Words to build a life upon. If you work these words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. Why? Because it was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, then you are like a stupid carpenter, sorry kids, who built his house on the sandy beach. And when a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. So we're in a series called And So We Give. How many of you know that God loves you? Amen. And Scripture says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that He gave, right? That He gave. What did God give? His only begotten Son. Good. And that's the truth we're celebrating during this holiday season, that everything we have is a gift from God. That each of those gifts really find their, their fullest and their richest meaning in our greatest gift, which is Jesus. So... I just want to dialogue for a second. What are some of the things that God has given us? When you think over your life, what are some of the things that God has blessed you with? Family. Good. Relationships. What else? Coffee. Coffee. Yeah. <laughs> some are more thankful than others. Yeah. A job. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the other things that God has, has blessed you with? Health. Kind of important. Good. Freedom. Amen. Mad dancing skills. Nice. Nice. Anything else? Nature. Mm. We're surrounded by God's blessings, aren't we? And when I think of that, it just it causes my heart to be so thankful. So thankful. Um, for this series, we've kind of taken all those things, those blessings from God, and we've organized them into these five categories. And those are um, spiritual, like your faith, the, the, the faith. How many of you know that the faith we have, even that is a gift from God? He's the author and finisher of our faith. And uh, relational capital, somebody mentioned family, right? Physical capital, health, strength, vitality, time, energy, effort intellectual capital, which is what we're talking about today, and, and financial capital, which Tom did a great job on last week. Yeah, Tom did a great job on last week. I'll say that again. That was good. <laughs> and these are, these are listed from the hardest to get, the spiritual, the faith, to the, to the easiest to get, the financial one. But the problem is in our culture and in, in many cultures around the world, what does everybody think of when they think of capital? Money, yeah, yeah. 
And Tom, Tom did a great job talking about that last week, how financial capital in our culture, we, we strive for money. Because I, I think because money represents to us all the things that we long for, uh, the success, the, the security that we're looking for, social life, the, the satisfaction we, we desire. We, we often think, if I just had a little more money, then fill in the blank, right? More family vacations, a cooler car, you know, which, which could just be a good thing because your car breaks down all the time. Or it could be a good thing uh, in your mind because people will think better of you. So, so we work extra hours. We make sacrifices. We do just about anything for a few more dollars. I mean, I know people that have moved their family across country just for a better job or a bigger house. But what if money is not all it was cracked up to be? I think the world kind of gets this better at times than many of us do. Uh, I, I was reading a book recently. Has anybody read uh, Robert Kiyosaki? Yeah. In Rich Dad, Poor Dad, he says this quote. He says, I'm concerned that too many people are focused too much on money and not on their greatest wealth, which is their education. If people are prepared to be flexible, keep an open mind and learn, they will grow richer and richer through the changes. If they think money will solve their problems, I'm afraid those people will have a rough ride. Intelligence solves problems and produces money. Money without intelligence is money soon gone. So even though money's important, and it's a capital, and it's a blessing that God has given us, it's not the most important capital. Because if you have money without the intelligence to use it, what good does it do you? Right? Can I get an amen? Man. What good is money without the understanding of how to use it? So God has given us a far greater gift than the digits in our bank account or the green paper in our wallets. God has given you the divine gift of thought and intellectual capacity. Have you ever thought of what a wonder your brain is? I mean, think about it. God has placed inside of you this capacity for learning and growing and adapting to change. There's, there's nothing like your brain. Animals have brains. They're, they're different, though. Is everybody, everybody's aware of that. Cool. By a show of hands, how many are aware of the fact that human brains are different than animal brains? I'm pulling for crowd involvement here. I'm liking this. We're going to turn you guys Pentecostal here before the day's over. Human brains have this, this capacity for higher reasoning, for concepts of, of good and evil. And I mean, I think about the inner workings of our mind. I read this. Here's a couple of interesting t- statistics. The, the brain is made up of over 100 billion nerve cells. And each brain cell is connected to around 10,000 other cells. So it equals about 1,000 trillion connections in your brain. That's a lot of connections, Right? There's about a billion neurons in the human brain, and that's about the same number of stars in our galaxy. Pretty cool, right? Right here in your little head. Bigger head for some of us. Check your hat size. And and if you think computers are powerful, simulating one second of human brain activity takes approximately 82,944 processors. So... 
That's for one second of your living, your breathing, your walking, your talking. The human mind is a, it's a wonder of God's creation. And, and part of me would love to geek out there and just talk about that all day, you know, because that's, 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 I think that's, that's awesome. But you have to stop and ask why. And I'm going to ask you that. Why did God give us something so special? Why do you think God gave you a brain? Anybody? What are maybe one of the <laughs> to make choices? Good. Yeah. What else? Mm. Reason and question. Good. Mm. Creativity. Yeah. How many of you are glad for art? Anybody here named Art? <laughs> we're all we're all glad for you. Anything else? Solve problems. Yeah. Awesome. Surviving, adapting, changing, understanding life. God gave you that mind for a reason, a purpose. And God has given us a mind and he's commanded us to love him with our mind, hasn't he? The man, you know, the story comes to Jesus and says, what's the greatest commandment? And he says to love the Lord, your God, with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. Your mind is it's a resource. And like all the gracious gifts and blessings, I was asking for amens and audience participation. I got it. And like all the gracious gifts and blessings and capitals, the mind finds its fullest expression and deepest meaning in the giver in his glorious gospel. Amen? So life is something that most of us experience on a fairly regular basis. And we're constantly learning and adapting and growing intellectually. And, and as we learn and grow and process new information and experience new things, we, we change. Our lives change. We, we start to see things from new perspectives. We begin to make new decisions based on new knowledge and um, we're going through this right now as parents. We have a two-year-old that we are potty training, Gavin. And he's picking up on it slowly. Um, a little too slowly for me, for Dad. But um, we, we got him this really cool little potty that sings to him when he uses it. So that's really cool. It's, it's annoying a little bit at times because sometimes you can't get it to stop singing. So, you know, you empty it out and you clean it and it just keeps singing the toilet paper song over and over. But, but he loves it. So we dance around in a circle, you know, we give him candy to reward him. Uh, and, and so with association, you know, just in the same way that Pavlov's dog salivated at the ringing of a bell, we are hoping that with this repeated association, our son will start saving us money on diapers and learning and growing and changing. But beyond even basic learning by association, beyond operant conditioning and behavioral psychology, there's, there's a deeper level of change that happens deep, deep down within us as we take on new beliefs and begin to live out of them. So God has designed you and God has designed me to be shaped and to live out of our deepest beliefs, our heart-level understanding of life and reality and, and meaning. And Jesus points out in this parable how important it is that you get the right understanding of life because it will shape your life. Intelligence 
it's, it's bigger and it's more than the things we're often taught to associate with it. When we think of intelligence, I think we think of just our, our brain and schooling and facts we know and problems we solve. And, you know, intelligent people carry Mensa cards and can speak five languages, you know, and those, those types of things. But intellect in Scripture isn't just like giant cerebral calculations. Like one plus one equals two. Intelligence in Scripture goes a lot deeper than that. It's not just knowing facts and formulas. It's, that's part of it. But when Scripture talks about intelligence and intellectual capital, it takes on this much more holistic approach. The word Scripture uses for intellectual capital is, is wisdom. Everybody say wisdom. Someone in Scripture isn't just called wise because they got high scores on their SATs or, or the books that they've read or the knowledge they've accumulated. It's, it's not even just about their experiences that have shaped them and changed them and helped them. But wisdom is about applied knowledge. In other words, it's, it's not about the things you've learned, but what you do with them. The, what truths you bring into yourself and what you believe and how it shapes your life. Wisdom is shown by your life. Your intellectual capital is this integrated understanding of your mind learning information and your heart believing it. And it's shown by your hands living it out. And according to Jesus, it's not just like somewhat little important, but it makes the difference in your life. It will make you or break you. And here's the danger. If you don't get God's wisdom, if you don't take it into your mind and heart and allow it to steer your life, then something else will. And if you, if you don't build your life upon it, you'll build your life on something else. And you will never discover the lasting happiness and the healthy relationships or the abundant life that Jesus came to bring you. Your life may look great on the outside, but the true structure will be weak and rickety and it will show itself in the, in the times of storms. But if you discover the wisdom of God, and if you accept it as true, if you begin to interpret and, and understand all of life through the lens of God's wisdom and begin to see your relationships and finances and hopes and dreams through it, if you point everything in your intellectual capital to Jesus, then you will be wise like the scriptures say. And your life will be built on a stable foundation and it will stand the test of time and more than that, be a blessing to everyone around you. How many of you guys want that? So what does it look like to be wise? Well, part of it, part of it is learning, right? Learning to educate yourself, go to school, read, discuss, and meditate. Learn from your life experiences. Hear other people's stories. Hopefully you learn from hearing other people's stories, right? Instead of just learning the hard way by having to go through it yourself. We even learn when we're watching TV, believe it or not, right? and listening to the lyrics of songs. We learn when, when we listen to sermons or study scripture. But, but here's the thing. There are messages all around us, and sometimes those messages conflict with one another. They can't all be true. For instance, the other day I'm driving, and I pulled up, and there's sirens, and I had to reroute. But while I'm rerouting, I see these two cars like T-boned in an intersection, you guys ever pulled up on an accident like that? And the two people, they're not happy. 
um, they're, they're very angry and they're yelling at each other. And so I didn't stop to listen, but I could imagine, right? This guy saying, you came through the intersection and it was my lie. No, you came through at the wrong time. And they're yelling at each other. And the cops are over there trying to get the story and figure out what really happened. And this person, like you could say, oh, well, that person, you know, it was true for them what they experienced. They went through the intersection and they thought the light was green. And, and it was true for the other person. They both kind of have their own relative truths. Right? And, and both stories are true in a sense. And, and maybe, but if there's a camera, like it's actually recording something that did in fact happen, right? There's an actual objective truth. And in the same way, there's all these conflicting stories and culture around us. And they can't all be true. So what is the truth? What is the actual story of what's happened? What is the, the good news? What is the gospel? And um, so we're, we're going to talk about that here in a second when I figure out where I was. There we go. And that's where we want not just a person's truth, that person's truth, but what is really true. And it brings up this important question. And it's one that I can't spend much time on today, but I'll touch on it. And that's this, this idea of, of common grace. Has anybody heard of common grace? Great, wonderful doctrine. Um, what do you do with like worldly knowledge, other traditions, philosophies, religions, self-help books, right, etc.? What do you do with that? Do we just say, oh, that's all just evil and wrong and we don't ever read it and we don't watch movies and we don't listen to people who don't believe exactly like us? Is that what God's called us to do? No, no, of course not. For new creations, the gospel is our lens for interpreting everything. So we're searching for truth, but we don't have to search farther than Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. But what does that mean? Does that mean that we park our wagons there and stop going to school and stop learning? No, God's truth is everywhere. It's all around us. And that's this whole idea of common grace. Great book on that is by... Uh, Dr. Richard Mao, Tim Keller recommends it. It's called He Shines on All That's Fair. I'm just throwing that in there for those of you that want to take it deeper. Like, I want to read more on that. But, but we listen to culture. We attend school. We watch movies. And we see them through the lens of this beautiful, full truth of Jesus Christ. And I think that's just something that's obvious, right? Because the gospel doesn't tell us that one plus one equals two. That's not recorded in Luke. Right? But the gospel doesn't clash with that idea either. The gospel speaks to everything, but it doesn't teach me every little detail about life that I need to know to function in the world. It's like the business that I started a bit ago. The gospel doesn't tell you how to start a recycling business. I wish it had. It was, it was frustrating. And a lot of backward learning. Um, I... I, I had to have it done. It was hard. It, I mean, it's, it's a competitive world in recycling. How many of you have started a recycling business? <laughs> Mike helped me with it. That was awesome. Awesome time. But it's a tight-lipped world. People don't want to share with you their intellectual capital on starting a recycling business because they don't want the competition. So we had to learn the hard way. We had to work a lot of extra hours in trying to start this recycling business that we normally wouldn't have had to work if we understood what we were doing. If we had any concept at all of how to do it, 
we were green and not in the environmental sense, but just in the dumb young sense of trying to do something. And um, I'll tell you what, the only thing that motivated me to keep doing it was because we we're trying to do something greater with it. I, the gospel had impacted my heart and life in such a way and our hearts and lives that we wanted to help people through it. And we thought recycling is a great way that we can do this. So we pushed in and we, we started the business and we started working, collecting recycling at the nightclubs at three o'clock in the morning. Tyson was there. We almost got, Zach was there. Wow. There's a lot of aware people in this room. Kenny. Yeah. I'll never forget. Like we were collecting from this one place and a guy walked up with a, with a, um, with a bottle three in the morning and he said, Oh, you think you're collecting recycling from here? You guys better get on. We said, we're nonprofit. We have a contract. We're supposed to get their recycling. He's all, this is our territory. Like, oh my God, they're going to kill us. And we're just trying to find for trash. What in the world is going on here? It was a tough thing to start. And God was gracious and helped us start it. And as we learned, I mean, scripture didn't say, here's step one, two, three to start a recycling business. We had to learn that. But the gospel did speak to it. The gospel did shape the company and teach us how to do it. Like, as I learned how to run a recycling business, I began to see this truth all around me that pointed me to Jesus and caused my heart to worship. Like, for instance, the, just the idea that he is the redeemer. And he takes our brokenness and gives us something beautiful in return. In recycling, it's money. It's not very beautiful, but, you know, you get the idea, right? There's this divine exchange that, that God is the greatest recycler of junk in the universe, started thinking about that and how, like, even in my life as I'm doing this recycling and trying to do something bigger and greater, in some sense I'm learning about how, how much hard work it's been for God to recycle my life. To recycle what, what he's doing is he's recycling the world. And, and so this, this thing that I was doing that the Scripture didn't really tell me how to do, Scripture was forming and shaping and informing and changing my heart through the process. And as I partook in that and, and worshiped God through it, I, something else happened. It began to paint a picture to those around me of the gospel. Like When you're doing this kind of work and people realize how many hours you're working, that you're not really getting paid, it causes them to ask questions. Are you stupid? Was one of them, right? But some of the other questions were, you know, this can't be very lucrative. And you're hanging out with those kinds of people all the time. Not these guys, but, you know, some of the other people at the recycling center. You're working how many hours for free? How do you do it? And I was able to point them to the gospel in those moments as the motivation. I was able to paint a picture, uh, you know, sometimes better than others, with words as to what God was doing in my life. And I think it's the same way, you know, as, as you grow and learn and increasingly believe the gospel, your life changes, people begin to see the house of your life. And they begin to ask about it. And they begin to ask how you built such a house. And you can point them to this, this foundation that you have. You can point them to the grace that even the building of the house was a gift of God. And in that way, your house tells the story of its foundation. And if the gospel is your foundation, your life is going to be a testimony to the gospel. And you'll have plenty of opportunities to share the wisdom of God with others and to help them building on mission. So, so how do we build our houses? 
Well, it's not just about accumulating knowledge. It's about what you choose to bring into your life as a belief and what you decide is true. It's happening right now as I'm speaking. For each of you sitting here, you're deciding whether you agree with what I'm saying or not. And that's, I grew up in a church where they used to say, Amen. Anybody else ever hear that? Amen. Right? Which is like our way of saying, I agree with that. I receive that. Right? It's very, like I said, we're going to try to get you guys Pentecostal by the end of the sermon. So, everybody say amen. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> right? We were agreeing, but even deeper than an amen or a verbal agreement, when we really believe something is true in our heart of hearts, we begin to experience that truth deep down. It affects us, it affects our emotions, it affects this invisible world inside of us. It's not just information, but as the Holy Spirit applies the truth of God to our hearts, it becomes transformation. It begins to affect our lives. Because if you want to know what you believe in your heart today, just look at your life. Look at, look at your life. Because we live out of our deepest beliefs, don't we? Scripture says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Or there's another verse, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to know your deepest held beliefs, just look at the past year. We're in December. Look at your calendar, 2013. How did you spend most of your time? And why? Why? Not everybody in the world worked that hard, you know? Or worked that much or went to those places you did? What beliefs led you to spend the time you did doing those things? Or look look at your bank statement from the past year. Where did you spend your money? And why? Why? What beliefs led you to spend your money in those places? Not everybody else did. Why did you? <clears throat> whether they're whether they're good or bad. Look at your influence. How did you vote? Who did you advise in your life? What did you tell them? Look at your life, the things you said and did and read and watched and and bought. Look at your life and you'll see what your deepest beliefs are. And when you live out of your beliefs, you show your understanding of life. That's what Jesus is talking about in this parable. If you build your life on God's truth, you will have true understanding and you'll experience the fruit of your beliefs. You'll see life as it really is and be able to share that wonderful resource with the kingdom. To live a life worth imitating. To to be a disciple who lives a life people actually would want to live. How many of you want to live a life that people would want to live? Amen. So there's two ways to build wrong. Jesus Jesus talks about that in this parable. This, This amazing exchange that happens with us. And and he says the wise man did what? Built his house where? On the rock. So so wisdom is not just integrating your understanding into your mind and your heart and your hands, but it's integrating the right understanding into your life. One of three things happen. You either build your life on the wrong things because that's all you know, or you hear the right things. And you build your life on the wrong things anyway because you decide not to believe those things. 
Or the third thing happens, you learn the right things and believe them and begin to live out of them, building your life on the right things. So there's one way to build right and two ways to build wrong. But either way, if you aren't building your life on the wisdom of God, you're building on some other foundation. Just picture a house, will you? The house I picture is the one from the 80s movie Sleeping with the Enemy with Julia Roberts because it's a beautiful house on the beach. It's gorgeous. It's a mansion. 90s? Is it 90s? I have no concept of time at all. That's my wife. Right? And so this beautiful house on the beach, palm trees, everyone is amazed by how gorgeous this house is. Right? But then, like, imagine that hurricane season hits Florida. Right, Zach? Or, or an earthquake comes up here in sunny San Diego and hits this beautiful house. And all of a sudden, that house that looks so beautiful begins to show its true value as it begins to crumble and, and fall apart while others around it remain standing. Worse, it presents a danger for the people that live there, doesn't it? I mean, imagine living in a house built on sand in an earthquake. That'd be bad. That'd be a really bad idea. I, I wouldn't do that, right? I don't think. But if I really examine my life, I, I think I do that all the time. But we'll, we'll get to that. Anyway, hurricane season hits, earthquakes hit, and it presents a danger. I mean, imagine the hurricane report comes in. The family goes rushing for the home for shelter. As these distant winds begin blowing louder and louder, and the house begins to creak and shake, and the roof starts falling, and the house collapses, it destroys the life inside, and this 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 shelter, this home that was meant to protect life and provide life ends up becoming a death trap. Why? Because it wasn't built on the solid foundation. It wasn't built on the gospel. And maybe the homeowner never heard the gospel or maybe they heard it and chose not to believe it and live it out. Yesterday, some of us went to this awesome uh, Soma One Day conference and and this, this issue actually came up a little um, that this is a huge issue in the church today in America. That the American church, in fact, Jake said this. I, I typed out the quote. The American church is one of the most educated, full of knowledge churches in the world, but one of the most disobedient. And then later on, Jeff Anderstelt said, a disciple is someone who's taught to obey God's word, not just know God's word. They're not just saturated with the gospel like a bunch of fat and not doing anything with it. Quite an image. I, I hope we learn to be a people who not only learn God's word, but learn to put it into practice. Doers of the word, not hearers only. To listen, to believe and obey. At one point, I think it was Jeff Anderstelt said, the Pharisees were brilliant in Jesus' day. They knew the word better than anybody, better than the 12 disciples from Galilee. They were brilliant, but they weren't doing anything with all that knowledge. They weren't disciples. And it reminds me of what Jesus says to the Pharisees in, in Luke 6.25. He says, Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Why? Why, why would he say that? Because they were literally at ease in Zion. They were satisfied with 
their dead, dry religiosity. They were full of this Word of God. They'd been to plenty of Bible studies. They knew it backward and forward. But they had nothing to show for it. In fact, I think many of us struggle with dietary disorders when it comes to the bread of life. The Word of God, the Gospel. Now, I'll just jump into that real quick for fun. Some of us are kind of like spiritual anorexics. We nibble here, we pick and choose, and essentially kind of starve ourselves when it comes to the caloric intake that we need from the gospel. Others of us are more like spiritual bulimics who we take it in, but then we go into the other room and get rid of it right away and end up malnourished and starving because we like the taste of it, but not the reality. Uh, we don't we don't take it into our lives and work it out. But most of us in the American church kind of mirror our culture. I think it was Newsweek recently said that America is the fattest nation in the world. Again, they say that like once a year, one magazine or another. We we end up like malnourished and starving. But but let's be honest, a lot of us are just spiritually obese. We are. I. I'm scared going into holiday season right now because they say you gain five or 10 pounds on average during the holidays and I'm already five or 10 pounds past where I need to be. So I'm I'm nervous about it. But a lot of us are spiritually obese. Why? What's the problem? Well, we're taking in the gospel, but we aren't working it out in life. Like bread has calories. The gospel has the power you need to live a gospel life. But what happens to those calories, those bundles of energy when they aren't used? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, fat. It's not just about sermons and Bible studies. It's about living on mission. It's about taking the gospel out and living it out and sharing it. And each day, the early church studied Scripture a lot. And the early church is, is learning the apostles' doctrine. But, but they need it because they're on mission and they need more and more of it. It's like the person who's working out and needs more calories, right? The gospel is something to live out of, to obey, to build your life on. And if you aren't obeying it, then you're not building your life on it. But make no mistake, your life is being built on something. You are obeying something. Whether it's a mixed bag of philosophies and thoughts and and worldly wisdom that you've chosen to believe, or whether it's a moralistic approach to the gospel truth, this this religion that's replaced the gospel as the foundation of your life, or whether it actually is the good news, the gospel itself. In the end, any knowledge you have, any life experiences, any truth you hold on to, that wisdom will show its value in your life. Because storms come for all of us. Floods come, and earthquakes, and the test of your foundation will show the value of of your intellectual capital. So let me ask you, how's your house doing? When you think about your life, is it pretty? Does it have a lovely lawn and a backyard? Or is it like a small apartment-like home? Maybe it has a fireplace and crown molding. I, I don't know what kind of house you have, but, but how do you appraise your life? When you look at your life, how are you doing? In the end of the day, you may have a 20,000 square foot home that's built on sand, or you may have a tiny little shack built on a rock, but, but here's the important truth. The value of your home is only as strong as the value of your foundation. 
And if your life is built on something besides the gospel, Jesus says it's worthless. What does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? But if your life is based on the gospel, it's priceless. So today I'm urging you to do an appraisal of your life. How do you know? Maybe you look at your life and you say, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Is my house built on the rock or the sand? I go to church. I pray. I'm part of a DNA group. And I study the Bible regularly. I even give online. How do you know? How do you know? I'll tell you how you know. You have to look at your life. You may know some scripture. Right? But the real question is in your life. Examine it. Be, become a building inspector with me. Let's just take a, take a break from everything that's been said so far and just, just zone in on this. Take a walk through the house of your life. The place you've chosen to, to invest and put down roots. And I want you to just visit each room. Flip on the light switches. Lift up the floor and examine you know, the foundation. Examine your life. I'm going to ask you a few questions. Do your actions show that you believe the gospel or not? Are you constantly struggling with addictions? Wandering from defeat to defeat instead of living in victory? Are you in a state of negativity or anxiety or fear? Do you constantly find yourself trying to impress others or defend yourself? Are you still holding on to unforgiveness? Do you avoid community or run from responsibility? Do you spend your money irresponsibly or hoard it obsessively? Do you lose control of your emotions or do you hold so tightly onto them and nobody even knows you have them? How's your love for others? How's your heart when somebody talks about giving more of your blessings, whether it's your time, energy, effort, finances, faith, relationships, or intellect? Is, is your life overflowing with love? for God and for others? Or are you experiencing something else? And I think the most trying question is when the storms of life blow and the rains and the winds beat against your house, are there weak areas and entire sections that are so weak they may threaten the whole structure? Are you inspecting your home? Those parts of your life may need to be examined because if, if your answer to some of those questions was, oh man, that's a struggle area, those weak parts aren't built on a solid foundation. They're not. And it was something we say around here quite a bit is, we in, in, in many areas are all unbelievers, aren't we? How many of you know that there's, even though you may have received Christ and you may be a believer and you may believe that the gospel is true, there's still a lot of areas in your life where it doesn't show up. There's still a lot of weak areas of the house of your life that aren't built on the solid foundation of the gospel. And because of that, there's these weak spots in your house. And we constantly need the good news proclaimed again and again to us in every area of life. Because either the gospel, the truth of God, will replace those weak spots or we will build on something else. I think if I could, that's, that's why I would say, I, I think that's why we need community. Really bad. I, I do. I, I need other sets of eyes on, on my life to see those weak spots. 
to help say, hey, I know you walked through that room and you thought that it was like built pretty well on the foundation of the gospel. But, man, I was in there the other day and the wind was blowing and the, the wall just started going, you know. Oh, yeah? Maybe I need to re-examine that part of my house, my life. I'm really writing this metaphor out. I don't know if you guys can tell. <laughs> right? We need other voices to help us figure out how to believe the gospel in those areas or where we're not believing them. We need gospel-centered community on mission. And as we experience that, we get to help other people. The intellectual capital that we've grown by God's grace actually becomes a blessing to others who are learning to rebuild their lives in community. And your house can become a testimony Maybe even a shelter to those who are going through storms and need a place to run or a place to learn how to rebuild. Now, I'll tell you something. I have had moments where people saw part of my life by God's grace that was firm and strong. And because of that, I got to share the gospel with them. That's been awesome. But more often than not, I'm afraid that although I would love for every area of my life to be built on the solid foundation, I often experience the reality that in my life... There are these weak, broken areas. Often it's, it's through those storms and those floods and earthquakes that God graciously exposes the weakness and allows them to beat against my life and shake anything that can be shaken and expose which areas I'm not trusting in Him. Which areas I'm not really being found to be wise because I haven't built on Him and His truth. For instance, last night... Um, I was studying for this sermon, and normally I'm a pretty quick study when it comes to sermons. Like, I, I can throw a sermon together in about two hours if I need to. So all week I've been working on this sermon, and it's like, it's like really like just hitting a wall. And it's like, well, I'll just come back to it in an hour. Go get some coffee, hang out, come back to it. Wall. What in the world is going on? Just frustrated, right? And so. Um, Normally it's this breeze, but I've been going through this all week, not getting any traction, and now the pressure's on. And it's it's my first time to preach at the new church. What will people think? So I'm sitting at Casa de Pico last night after the conference, and I'm like, I found this spot safe in the rain where they had Wi-Fi and they had a plug-in for Internet. And I sit down, and I'm like, finally, some solace. I'm going to be able to focus. We're going to pound this sermon out. And then I will, I didn't say this, but... I, I know it was there. Then I will impress everyone. You know, that's, I know, I'm sorry. I just openly confess all the time. So get used to it. And, um, so I'm sitting there and within about three minutes, all of a sudden the mariachi band walks in (laughs) and the trumpeteer comes to my corner and he's facing me about this far from me. And I'm like, oh my God, really, dude? And and so I'm trying to like not be unchristian. And I don't know what that means, but I'm just like, I'm studying and just kind of looking up. And finally, I just like, dude, really? And, um, and I see he like meets my eyes and he turns around and faces the other way, which I feel really bad. But okay, even if I was enjoying dinner, that was just way too loud. But I'm studying the word of God here, you know? Have some respect. So, 
I'm so frustrated. Anyway, so I studied at home late. I woke up early and went to Starbucks. And, and the more I did, the more I studied, the more it didn't come together. How do you think I felt? Frustrated, angry. And the winds of life are beating against this area of my house and exposing a weakness. Sometime this morning I realized, wow, that's a part of my life that's not built on the solid rock. In this moment, I'm trying to impress people more with myself than I am to point them to Jesus. Which is what a sermon is, by the way, pointing us to faith in Christ. And I'm not trusting in His finished work for my identity. I'm hoping in the approval of others. And God graciously exposed that so I could change. How many of you have gone through times in your life, maybe even in the last week, where the winds and the storms begin to beat up against an area and you realized, oh wow, I have some work to do in this area. I have some home improvements that need to be done. I need to call Tom and ask for help. (laughs) So what do we do? What do you do if you examine your life and you find that parts of your life are not built on the rock? When you experience the fruit of unbelief and the storms are blowing in your house, is falling apart. I'm glad you asked. It's pretty simple. Rebuilding is actually simple. It's hard, but it's simple. You let the weakness be exposed and you trust in the only one who can truly rebuild it. You repent and believe. That's how you rebuild your life. See, Jesus is the one that we believe in, right? As we repent and believe, we we look to Jesus. Jesus has the perfect house, the perfect foundation. It's the kind of structure we would all long for one day. And and not only that, but he's he's the source of wisdom. If we're going to stick with that foundation being the metaphor for life, Jesus is the source. Scripture calls him the chief cornerstone, the master builder. Some people may have prettier or bigger houses than you. They may have more foundation and rock than sand underneath their house than you do. But that's not something they did on their own. None of us has built our own house on the foundation. It is only the master builder that helps us build our house. It's in our surrender. It's in our allowing Him to be strong in our weakness. It's in our turning to Him as the source of truth and laying aside the wisdom of the world. And in Christ, your life will become more stable and sturdy and dependable. And the strength from your foundation will pass into the structure of your life. And then your daily strength will reside in the source of your life. And the cool thing is then your life will actually start to build value and equity, right? And this foundation upon which it stands. And you'll have plenty to invest in the kingdom and in the lives around you. You'll be a source of wisdom. People will come by and see a part of your life that's standing. And it's firmly rooted in Christ. And they'll say, I want that. And you can point them to Jesus. You can share the gospel with them. You see, life through a gospel lens and be able to interpret culture and all the world's wisdom and and be able to help those around you find the solid rock to build their lives on. So my question for you as we start wrapping up today is, is God calling you to invest 
intellectually. God's given you a mind, life experiences, the capacity to learn and grow. God's given you the deepest truth in the universe, the very wisdom of God, the gospel. And these form your intellectual capital. So my question to you, I want you to think about this in closing. How can you begin to use that for the mission of God? How can you love the Lord your God with your mind? How can you say, I've been given this by God and so I give? Before, before I pray over you, I just, I'd like to ask you one last question for dialogue. What are, what are some ways we can be generous with this intellectual capital that God's given us? Share our talents. Good. Yeah. Mm, share your life experiences with people. Yeah. Mm, that's good. Even though, so even though experience may have taught us to shut down and wall up, right? The gospel frees us from that, and we build our life on this foundation of the gospel, and we learn that we can be open with people and trust people again and love people. In spite of, that's awesome. What else? Write a book. There you go. What would you write a book on, Marco? If you're going to write one right now. Nice. I would read it. That's awesome. Yeah, this could be like something like using your job skills to benefit others, right? Or... Or an example of maybe a nurse who takes part in a free clinic for disadvantaged seniors. Or a graphic designer who helps a nonprofit design a website. Kenny. By the way, if you like our church website that was designed by Kenny for free, and it's awesome. Just point you out. That's an example of using your intellectual, your intellectual, um, kept, Capital, thank you. Currency, yeah. your intellectual capital for the kingdom. What are some more? Is there any any other ones you guys can think of? Share the gospel. Mm, share the, the deepest truth we have. All right, share the gospel. How can we do that? What are some ways we can share the gospel with people? Mm. Mm. Good. At our work. Yeah. Study scripture together. How else? How else can we share the gospel with people? Mm. Good. Yeah, that's awesome. How we see where where we and others are finding our 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 satisfaction in something else, Mm. through knowing Jesus, Mm -hmm. intimately talk about how one another reminds one another daily where we we can better life. Yeah, good, good. I hope you're encouraged today.
I know when you talk about storms and and life and things beating up your house, it, it, it can be like, man, that's really negative. But there's a positive side to it too, and that is that when the sun is shining and everything's beautiful, in your life daily, you get this opportunity to share the wisdom that God has given you with everyone around you through your life, through your words, through your actions. And the greatest wisdom we can share with anyone is the gospel to help them build their life on it, to actually help them see the areas of their life that are weak and lovingly speak, speak the truth and love to them, preach the gospel to them, whether we're in community or whether it's somebody you're at work with. So I, I want to pray over you and we're, we're going to take communion and, uh, as, as we take communion, I, I just want you to be thinking about before, before you step into the back um, with the people in your DNA group or maybe with your family or your missional community, the, the wine of communion. Just remember that, that Jesus spilled his blood out for you to have new mercy for your failures. So you could be honest about those weak areas of your life and the areas that are not built on his foundation and to forgive you for being greedy with what you've learned and not sharing with others. And and the bread, remember that He lived this perfect life in the flesh for you and you can come to Him in belief that He will rebuild your life in the areas that are broken down. When you ask Him to be the foundation of your, your marriage or your finances or whatever area you found in your life that is weak, that He'll be your foundation and rebuild it for you. You can have confidence in Him. And he'll give you the ability to use your intellectual capital for, for his mission. Amen. I'm going to pray over you. Lord, I, I pray that we would really consider your words above all things. And that in the storms and the trials of life, we'd remember that faith is proven and tested and shown for what it really is. I ask you to be our foundation, God to save us from the temptation to build our life on anything else besides you. To build our, our families or our church or, or our jobs or anything else. Not, not just doctrinally, but the motivations of our hearts that they would be rooted and firmly planted in the gospel. And that we'd be able to see the fruit begin to grow out in our lives from that, God. That the foundation of our life would be you. And what a beautiful and eternal foundation we have in your word, in your gospel. What a gift. Lord, drive out the temptation to build on anything else. You are the chief cornerstone. You are our foundation. And you are the strength of our life, God. As the master builder, I ask you to rebuild our lives, rebuild every area of them around your truth so that one day we will have that witness to a broken and hurting world and we can point them to you as the source of our strength. In Jesus' name, amen.